I'm Alex Mellaris. And I'm Taisei Fu. And Taisei is in Toronto, Ontario, Canada right now for totally unrelated reasons, which is why he sounds a little different. But we couldn't wait any longer to talk about this week, not just because we were so excited to talk about all the ongoings, but also because there was another reason I was going to say, and I don't remember what it was. Uh, wow, this is off to a terrible start. Well, maybe this is why maybe we shouldn't start at 9 in the morning all the time, because I'm still very sleepy. Anyway, we're going to start by talking about the draft. We're going to cover everything. We're not going to forget anything. And we're going to start, obviously, with the first overall pick, which was Uri Slavkovsky. If you listen to last week's episode, you'll know that I said, I'm 75% sure that they'll take Shane Wright. It's clear now that I was wrong at the time, but I don't think I can really be blamed because Kent Hughes himself said that they didn't even commit to Slavkovsky until the day before the draft. And even at that point, they said they had a meeting with him uh, the next day, which had been delayed by two days, but the next day to dot their I's and cross their T's. So how could I have known they were going to take Slavkovsky when they didn't even know it themselves? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what that's one way to to justify being wrong um but yeah it really well yeah i think it wasn't just the habs it was really anybody who you saw cover the draft process uh there was a lot of you know slavkowski certainly made a, a, a massive late push uh so you know to for me personally i think i talked i talked to you beforehand um where I, I wasn't too surprised my prediction at that point had been slavkowski because if you looked at a lot of the sources that kind of came out of montreal um they were saying, oh, Habs are leading towards Slavkovsky. And the the sources that, that talked about, oh, Shane Wright still being in the running, uh, a lot of them came from like, oh, other GMs think that they still might take Shane Wright. Uh, but yeah, it, it really is. It was a weird year, um, you know, all things considering because, you know, Shane Wright, uh, having been so, so long established as a number, number one overall pick uh, to then finally at the very end uh, get passed by Slavkovsky. Uh, yeah, it's wild. And, you know, as for the pick, I think we, we, we both discussed what, what our thoughts are on this. Uh, and I don't think either of us still have Slavkovsky as, as, our, as our top guy. And personally, you know, I had a number three behind Cooley and Wright. Uh, but, you know, you understand where they're coming from. Uh, maybe you don't agree, but like it's the, it's the size. And if you compare them to Wright, I guess you could say there's more upside, even if uh, perhaps the, the production it, it, in his... Uh, in his league games, in his club games this year, wasn't as great as you would want for a number one overall pick. Yeah. I mean, I was... the When I started thinking about, oh, are they actually leading Slavkovsky? Was the Wednesday when that quote came out about, yeah, we're talking to him tomorrow to dot I's and cross T's. And I, there was no really other way to read that except for, oh, yeah, we're just, you know, making sure he's up to snuff before we pick him. Uh, which also implies that if he had bombed the interview, they would have changed their minds hours in advance. That that When you're interviewing on the day of, you are leaving that possibility open. That's the reason you're doing the interview. You want to make sure you don't have to change your mind. But the next day, when I think it was Slavkovsky who said, like hours before the draft, like, oh yeah, we were supposed to have the meeting like three days ago or whatever, but there were like flight issues. Then that's when I start to think, oh, maybe maybe it's not. Maybe they're just, you know, they hadn't really gotten a chance to speak to him in person before so they were just doing it out of out of courtesy and you know and they were it wasn't actually going to affect their opinion and their decision that of course ended up uh being wrong 
And as the draft approached, I started thinking more and more like, all right, they might take Slavkovsky. I think the moment when I really started to to really believe that that's what was going to happen was as Montreal was on the clock and they panned over to the Montreal table. And of course, you know, all the fans are excited and cheering and can't wait to see. And they pan over to Kent Hughes, who you imagine knows that Shane Wright is a popular pick here, that that's what most of the fans are rooting for. They even had, you know, those people with their right choice shirts on the, that they got custom made somehow. And Kent Hughes' face is terrified. I don't know if you saw this moment, <laughs> but I was like, oh, you know, if he's, did, if yeah. he's picking right, he's like, you know, he probably doesn't have this look like he's just seen a ghost on his face. That's when I was like, they're taking Slavkovsky. <laughs> and then even, you know, I could kind of feel him like bracing himself as he announced the pick on stage. And part of me was like, this isn't the look of like someone who's, you know, a confident general manager who feels, you know, totally emboldened by this decision. And I'm sure it was a very tough decision. And, you know, you're a little nervous either way. But the fact that he was scared for the sting of the reaction, or at least appeared to look that way, was, uh, first of all, a sign of what was to come. And also, maybe not a great sign for his own personal confidence. <laughs> maybe not. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, <laughs> very funny. Uh, I hadn't even kind of made that connection. Um, but I, I do remember the look. Because it, it was very particular. I think you, you also kind of saw the same thing while he was announcing the, uh, the trade for, for Kirby Doc. It was maybe like, maybe Ken Tews just has a, has a particularly scared face during this time of year. Um, <laughs> but yeah, usually, you know, like you see, you see people make a draft pick and everybody's like smiling, laughing, shaking hands. Uh, I, I didn't get that impression. So, you know, and, and, and yeah, you talk about that meeting. Like, man, that's crazy. You're out here meeting people the day before. Uh, day of. Yeah, you're not going to wait. Day of, exactly. You're not going to waste their time uh, if you don't actually legitimately think they're going to pick them at pick number one. Um, but but yeah, just just uh, a wild process. And the fact that they really did go and actually take him. Uh, yeah, they, they they took the winger. <laughs> After all the, all these years of, you know, all the halves need a center, they ended up taking the winner. And uh, yeah, looks like they stuck to their guns there. Which brings me to my next point. You say like, oh, after all these years, they need us. They still do. Christian Dvorak is their number two center. I, I don't think even I don't think at this time Kirby Dak, Kirby Doc should be higher than Dvorak in the depth chart. Kirby Doc is coming off a a pretty bad season, and he hasn't been a great NHLer so far. Um, but what what I'm trying to say here is that I think wholeheartedly this was the wrong pick. I and I know no one's. You know, everyone's trying to beat around the bush. Like, oh, you know, he's going to be great. And like, I'm sure he is. And here, here's the way I, I think of it. As I kind of just said, Montreal fans all around and in the Bell Center were leaning right, cheering for right. And so when the pick was made, there was this big pop of like, I don't, there were, you know, maybe like four people were booing in the entire, but it was mostly a whoa type of thing, uh, which is where, you know, the massive noise came from. But when Slavkovsky later on was like walking around, you know, walking by Habs fans, everyone, you know, went crazy, cheering for him, high-fiving him. And broadcasters are like, oh, look, the fans love the pick. They're warming up to him real fast. And that's not how I see it at all. Because, you know, even I who disagree with this pick, 
when we were at the draft in day two, if we saw Slavkovsky, we would have freaked out. We would have cheered and we would have gone to say how great he was or whatever. And as I'm saying right now, I am one of the ones who disagrees with the pick. So I do think that. Okay, what I'm trying to say here, let me let me let me let me, let me try to get my thoughts together a little bit. I, I I'm not sure if I want to say like Habs fans are overcompensating for the fact that like he might have been the wrong choice by welcoming him extra hard. Um, I more want to talk about how I think it's absurd to. But here's why Wrightfeld, according to okay, everyone is giving like Corey Pronman all his props for basically saying this is exactly how it would go down and being the only one. Slavkovsky, number one, Devils take a defense fan. Arizona really likes Cooley. Shane Wright follows the number four. And then was when why why Shane Wright fall? And Corey Pronman is the one on it. He says, Oh, there wasn't enough, you know, wow factor in his game this year. There wasn't enough upside. There wasn't enough that really got the scouts excited. Whereas Slavkovsky, you know, is like, you know, dominant at the world championships and the Olympics and here and there. I, If you look at the bigger sample size, Shane Wright has a three-year sample size of being absolutely excellent. And this year, if his game, you know, quote-unquote plateaued, what do people talk about what's great with Shane Wright, you know? His, his attention to detail, his all-around game, these types of things that are typically, you know, boring or whatever. And yet he still put up, like, what was it, 90-something points in 60 games or something like that in the OHL by being boring, for being excellent three years in a row. Slavkovsky, in the, the league of this year, and I wasn't all about, all about production and numbers, but you compare it to, like, Alexander Barkov in his draft year, Kapokako in his draft year, who are in the same league. They both produced a much higher clips than Slavkovsky does. And if you're going off of the most exciting portions of the game, Slavkovsky, you know, in these small sample sizes, in these international tournaments, it's like, what are we trying? We're not the Harlem Globetrotters. We don't have to, you know, swing for, for excitement, especially if, as we know, Shane Wright will have a higher ceiling. As we know, he fits the, the positional need. I think this was uh, a mistake. And I think that... You thought Matthews and Line A was like the, you know, was bad as in terms of like the top two picks debate. And I know Wright fell outside of the top two, but that was when Toronto took the number one, the consensus number one player. Just imagine what this one is going to be like. Uh, Slavkovsky and Wright are going to be compared to each other constantly. And I'm really not very confident that when all is said and done, Slavkovsky is going to be on top. Yeah. I, it seems like, you know, what, what was the, a lot of uh, the kind of, Pro, the hypothesis a lot of people had was why Wright fell at, at the end of the day uh, was, you know, he, he was the consensus guy for like three years and people get, people get bored of him. People, you know, at that point, they're just trying to nitpick his, his, his flaws at that point. And yeah, maybe it's, it's easier to climb onto the hype train of, of the new flashy guy who had a great international, had two great international tournaments. Uh, and I feel like that's what the Habs got themselves into. Um, because, yeah, the sample size isn't quite there with Slavkovsky. And all things being considered, he's a fine prospect, right? Uh, he's exciting. He's got skill. And, you know, he's got the size that they love so much. Uh, but, you know, you, you look at who they passed over. And, yeah, they, they established number one guy. And there was a reason he was the number one guy. And, you know, he you know he had a COVID kind of wrecked the season last year. So you can see why, you know, maybe he didn't have as great a season as you maybe wanted as the number one overall pick. Uh, but... You know, I still believe that that talent and those smarts, they're still there for Shane Wright. Uh, and, you know, 
without COVID interrupting his development moving forward, hopefully. Uh, I, you know, I see him growing into a kind of, you know, great two-way center that we kind of expect. And with Slavkovsky, it's the, the projection is certainly less sure. Uh, and that's not to say, oh, I'm, you know, we're going for the higher floor with Shane Wright necessarily. Uh, I think the ceiling is there too. It's just, you're, you're playing a very, very risky game with taking Slavkovsky because I think the ceilings are similar at the end of the day. Uh, and yeah, I think the chance of panning out, we talked about percentages last week. Uh, and I think the percentage is much higher with Wright, uh, especially given how, just how established uh, he's been as like the top guy here in this class. Yeah, so for all the, you know, Slavkovsky versus Wright debate, did Montreal make the right pick or not? New Jersey is not getting clowned clowned on nearly enough for my liking with that second overall pick. I do have to say, commendable that they seemed much more confident in it than Kent Hughes did with the Slavkovsky pick. Uh, I don't remember the name of the person who made the pick, but you could tell, like, she started kind of smirking as she said the name, like she was excited for the reaction of shock. That she knew was coming when they took Simon Nemec over Shane Wright. I kind of had a feeling, and it was obviously confirmed afterward. New Jersey loved Slavkovsky, and they didn't love Wright or Cooley, uh, and that they were going to go defense if Slavkovsky was the top pick. And that meant either Yurichek, which is what Prominent predicted, or Nemec, which is what they ended up doing. And I have never seen a more blatant choice to draft positionally more egregious example than this and you know it's one thing if you know your prospect pool is flush with wingers so you want to lean away from wingers at the draft that's understandable because the consensus is you know everyone knows wingers are the easiest position to find and the least important one but when your centers you know you have jack hughes and nico hisher and dawson mercer who played a fair amount of center this year too like you know that's pretty good. But when you're picking second overall and you're already strong at the most important position, instead of making that even stronger with one of the consensus best two players available to reach into the next tier just to just to address a, a positional weakness on your team slash in your prospect pool is is I, I well, I understand it, but it's absolutely terrible logic. And I think even if they might not get clowned on as much as, you know, Montreal, if Shane Wright turns into the best player in the draft, uh, I think they they would deserve it more. Yeah, absolutely. It's nuts. It's not even, you know, that Cooley and Wright. So, you know, you want to go, you know, maybe like, you want to go maybe like that, that flashy, real ups, like crazy upside in, in Cooley. That's fine. And I think it would have been forgivable because for me personally, I think Wright and Cooley, they're closer than Wright and anybody else in this kind of class. And yeah, for, the, <laughs> for them to go positionally is truly, it's a brain dead maneuver. You know, you know, we're big fans of Nemec, or at least I am. Uh, yeah, I, you know, you love the offensive upside. I like him better than Juracek. So out of the two defensive, I think they made the right pick. But at the end of the day, did they take the best player available? No, I think they took the third best player available. And so, yeah, uh, it's just, I, I can't believe that's, that was their logic, right? That, oh, you know, New Jersey is that—that that was the thing coming out of it, right? Like if they don't get Slavkovsky, they love the defenseman. Well, man, that's that's some weird logic, and yeah, it's just it's it, it seems like a blunder to you know not take the best player available. Yeah, and then of course was you know the Arizona Cooley one, 
which I think you're okay, so I everyone was you know tying Arizona to Cooley like it was pretty much I've I on I'm pretty sure Arizona had Cooley atop their board. They seemed to talk to him the most, and according to Cooley, like they really liked him, and he had a very strong feeling that no matter what, he was gonna go there. Um, but then that of course. We all know heading into pick number four, Shane Wright's about to go to Seattle. And this is the moment that Gary Bettman decides to announce the two Montreal trades. Uh, there was there was there was a beautiful stretch of like fifteen seconds where everyone in the Bell Center and many people all around the world thought that Montreal was indeed about to trade up somehow into the fourth spot and take Shane Wright. In hindsight, uh Seattle would have needed a much greater package than Montreal could have offered. Honestly, they probably would have asked for Cole Caulfield or something like that to get it done, especially at such a, you know, on such short notice. It would have had to have been crazy. But I do think it is quite cruel timing on the part of, you know, Montreal slash Gary Bettman slash the other teams to announce those trades right as Shane Wright is still sitting there and Seattle's on the clock. But let's talk about those deals. First, of course, Alexander Romanov in the 98th overall pick to the Islanders for pick number 13, and then 13 and 66 for Kirby Doc. Uh, I spoke, you know, very, very briefly about Kirby Doc before, perhaps not as glowingly as I could have, um, because I do think, think, you know, there's a great player to be salvaged there. And when you look at these two deals as a whole, it's essentially Romanov, a 66th pick, and the 98th pick for Kirby Doc. So I do think. When you look at it that way, Montreal does come out on top. Now, I will pass it to you where I'm sure you will tell me uh, it is ill-advised and silly to look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah, it, this is not a, this whole like consolidating trades thing. That's not how these things should be evaluated uh, because this wasn't a three-way trade. It was, the, one trade was not contingent on the others. You know, the Habs could have stopped with the Islanders. Uh, so, you know, I, I prefer to evaluate each trade as it is. So let's, let's do that. So let's look at the, uh, the, the first trade where they get the 13th overall pick for Romanov in a fourth. That's robbery. That's robbery. The Islanders got robbed blind. Uh, you know, Luke clearly loved Romanov a bit too much and uh, fancied his upside compared to, you know, the great player that you could get at 13th overall. And yeah, you know, Romanov did not have a good year this year. He took a step back. And so to sell him for the 13th overall pick right now is insane. Great work by Ken Hughes. Uh, you know, nothing, no complaints whatsoever because with Romanov, you're talking about, you know, it doesn't look like he'll be a top top pair defenseman at this point and yeah so you're looking at you know bottom four kind of guy which is fine but to give up you know a thir- the 13th overall pick for that kind of guy even though he's young and, and already NHL ready it's nuts and so the Habs robbed him and so they're they're, they're coming out very much ahead in that first one uh but then to, to flip that 13th overall pick and a third round pick for Kirby Doc especially considering you know the kind of de- de- developmental the disappointing developmental path that Doc has taken with the Blackhawks. It's much. It's a it's a bit much. You know, it's rich. It's a bit rich for my blood. I think you could you should have paid less for Doc, especially considering, you know, the Blackhawks are undergoing a fire sale apparently right now, not even giving out qualifying offers to some of their better players. Uh yeah, I it, the, it's 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 too much. And you should have leveraged them for more. And you know what? If if they didn't want to do it, the Blackhawks want to play tough, just make the fucking pick. You know, Frank Nazar was right there. And he doesn't have a develop, like, you know, disappointing last three years, and that's the way the Hawks ended up taking with a pick. So, you know, at the end, you know, you can if you combine them, I think the Habs come out ahead. You flip Romanov a fourth and a third for a Doc. That's great. Good for you. Congratulations. But I think they could have stopped while they were really ahead after that first trade, 
And uh, I would be much happier as a Hab fan. Yeah, the Islanders, I mean, I just, you know, they love Romanov. Not only that, but looking at their depth chart uh, before that trade, Robin Salo was like the second left D they had under team control for next year. So they were in very desperate need. I'm, But, you know, you could have filled that with, you know, a trade in which you don't get absolutely rinsed or in free agency or something like that. They are they completely overvalued him based on, I guess, Mark Bergevin hyping him up as the next Drew Doughty two years ago. Lamorello took the bait, I guess. Um, as for Kirby Doc, I feel like you can kind of combine Doc and Slavkovsky into the thesis of Montreal really strongly believes in their player development system. Uh, you know, I guess in the, in the minors and with the NHL team, even though I I would guess Slavkovsky won't spend much time, if at all, in the AHL. And, I mean, you need that. You you want a good development uh, development program, organizationally, obviously. Uh, but I feel like Ken Hughes and, and the front office aren't really banking on it by taking these players, you know, higher upside Slavkovsky, they clearly believe than Shane Wright. Kirby Doc, who needs his development rerouted after some mishandling in Chicago, rushed to the NHL, played a full season right out of the draft, which he clearly wasn't very ready for. Um, they think they can do it. I, I think they they really know, like, they must have extreme confidence in paying that price for Kirby Doc that they can turn him into at least a second-line center. Either that or they're just, you know, falling blind to the top three pedigree, which I suppose isn't out of the question either. Yeah, I think I think that that might be a big part of it. Because what, this is top three pedigree from like, what, three years ago? So I get the feeling that it's part, you know, pedigree, or they're like, oh, we can get a top three pick from the last three years. Uh, and that kind of hype associated with it. And perhaps a mistrace, misplaced trust in their own developmental program. Because we've talked about it like the Habs, you know, and their inability to really kind of develop prospects in-house uh, over the past. Now, understandably, it's a new, you know, they overhauled the whole thing. It's a new, you know, management group. But because it's a new management group, there's no real sample size for, you know, how the Habs developmental program is right now uh, yeah. with these people at the top. And so to kind of put that trust in it, you know, I, there's no reason not to hedge, right? Uh, and, you know, you don't have to go all out. You can, you know, take some risky picks. That's fine. See how they pan out. But also, you know, take some maybe safer picks um, and, and don't, like, you know, get some, like, fucking fix-it projects like Kirby Doc uh, and kind of really lean so heavily uh, into your developmental program that hasn't been tested yet, really. Yeah, I mean... Another test that Montreal's development uh, program is going to get is Lane Hudson, but we'll we'll talk about him later. We'll talk about you know we'll go deeper into the drafts a little bit later on. Um, we actually haven't moved on officially past these trades and into the fourth overall pick, which was Shane Wright, and which included, of course, the stare. What are your thoughts on the stare? Ah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's funny. It's a funny bit. You know, it's a good. Like, it makes for a good TikTok or whatever. Uh, but. I don't know. Was it maybe it was just like you know blank stare, big moment? If I was on stage, I'd probably be blank staring all over the place. And you could be like, "Oh, he's giving the death stare to fucking the person in the second row." Oh, that wasn't a blank stare. Like, oh, come on. It could have been interpreted as such. I think 
I think it's it's hard to extrapolate that that was a death stare. I think it's a bit mush. Why are are you convinced otherwise? Yeah, I th- I think everyone like knows for sure he was lo- co- purposely consciously looking directly at the Montreal table with a you'll regret this face or whatever. It's, it's real. You know what I thought? It's real like Philip Zadina, fill your puck with Nets kind of vibes with the same team too. Um, but you know that hasn't panned out for Detroit yet. So I'm willing to pump the brakes on Shane Wright Habs killer just quite yet. Oh well, obviously he hasn't you know proved it yet, but he's clearly pissed, and I think much more pissed than he was trying to let on. But you could tell he was. He was seething. He was absolutely cheesed, and he was trying to hold it together. And that stare down at the Montreal table was like the most extreme measure he went to show how how angry and disappointed he was. That's rather tame, I gotta say. Uh, a death stare. I would have. I would have. It would have been more. Well, what was he supposed? To he was supposed to throw a tantrum or something. What, what do you expect? Yes, that's what I expected. You know, if he really was that bad, I want to see a tantrum, <laughs> or at least in the media afterwards. Um, not very professional, but would made for entertaining stuff. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see him lose it uh, because he wasn't the first overall pick. Yeah, because, you know, he always all those media interviews beforehand. He's like, I deserve to be the first overall pick and whatnot. He clearly hyped himself he's right. for him at that point. And he's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, it's it's uh, certainly, I, I, I still maybe I'm not convinced 100% that it was a death there. But I can see how it could be interpreted as such. I think you're the only person in the entire world who isn't convinced it's a death stare. Like it's it's basically fact. Everyone is discussing it as such. It's canon. <laughs> the Shane Wright death stare is canon. Uh okay. Yeah. All right. It's canon. I'll, I'll I'll hold mm-hmm. my position then. Um, but I guess I guess I'm a. It's a hot take that he might have just been fucking zooted out of his mind. Yeah. All right. Well, then, of course, Philly made the the reach that we expected they might to Cutter Gauthier. Columbus made their first excellent pick of the draft of David Yurichek. And then it was time for the pick that Chicago had acquired earlier that day. So let's rewind a bit now at this point. Why don't we to the afternoon in which rumors are swirling in Chicago around Alex DeBrinket and Kirby Doc. Of course, everyone's talking as though Dabrinkit is imminent and Kirby Doc is more of a, eh, there are talks. There are talks ongoing. Of course, the Doc one did end up happening because we just talked about it. And the Dabrinkit one ended up happening earlier. And has Pierre Dorian ever won a trade this convincingly? I don't think so. Alex Dabrinkit, we've, we, you know, we've talked about how great he is and how we, he fell in his draft year because he was short and all the Cole Caulfield comparisons but later on, obviously. Ottawa just got a star goaltender, goal scorer, not a goaltender, believe it or not. Goal scorer, 24 years old. The one downside people are floating out is like, oh, it's a high qualifying offer. He could walk straight to UFA if he wanted to. I don't think that's going to happen. And even if he did, honestly, for the price they paid, uh, especially for the, the, this draft at the seventh slot is, you know, relatively weak. And at seventh, you get, you know, uh, an outside the top 10 caliber player, probably, which which Chicago definitely did. But we'll get to that in a minute. 
I think this is an absolutely reasonable price to pay, even if you do lose to Brinkett after two years. And if you do manage to sign him long-term, what an utter steal for Ottawa. Ottawa fans were talking about how great it felt. that There was a trade involving Ottawa, and everyone was talking about how bad it was. But for the other team this time, Chicago, you know, trying to rebuild. Kyle Davidson is in there. Basically, you know, Stan Bowman went gave up, sold the farm for Seth Jones last summer. Kyle Davidson comes in, does the exact opposite. And is not qualifying Dylan Strom, Dominic Kubelik, trading to Brinkett and Dak for draft picks, getting all you know the young players out of there, not even asking Taves, Kane, and Jones to waive their no movement clauses, uh, getting Peter Morazic to be the tank goalie. It's utter disaster in Chicago, and Ottawa of all teams came out on the victorious end of things. Yeah, uh, I think you know when it comes to the success. Of Ottawa in this trade, um, I think it is contingent on getting them re- on getting them resigned long term because you talk about okay, it, the 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 price is uh, maybe reasonable for even if you just keep them for one year. But if you're Ottawa, that's not what you're looking for, right? And organizationally, this team you know still sucks uh, and they're not contending. And so Alex Debrincat in 2022-2023, if it's just that that you're getting for a first, second, and a third, I don't love it at all. I don't think it's good at all. And I think. If, you, if that's what happens and he walks, I think, honestly, you look back at the trade and you say, oh, we really fleece Chicago. But I think they ended up losers because, you know, you give up those futures for one year of this guy. So, you know, I think they really need to get signed to, br- to bring that sign. And I think he knows that. I think his agent knows that. And there's some real, there's some real, there's a real high leverage situation for Alex Debrinkat and Ottawa is going to need to really tread lightly, but make sure that they need to sign this guy because they did give up. At the end of the day, it was, you know, it wasn't expensive for a player of Debrinkat's quality and age. Uh, but, you know, it's not something that you want to give up for for you know one year of the guy and then end up having you know nothing to show for it afterwards. So it's risky, uh, but you know it, it's it's a solid get and absolutely you should make the trade. You just need to also follow up and make sure you need to sign the guy. And for Chicago, unmitigated disaster. Uh, there's there's no other way to put it. There's no way to spin this one where you, which you you know you kind of see this in a positive light because you know you could have just kept the Brinkat and you know have him. Have him be great for the next iteration of this core uh, because he's only 24. And what? how long do you think this rebuild is going to take? Like fucking 20 years? Uh, if it's anything reasonable, he, he could be a fine part of your next team. Uh, and to then trade him for this return, like this is like, you know, like shitty. This is like mid-level offer sheet kind of fucking return. First, second, and a third. Understandably, he's a seventh overall pick. But yeah, as you said, this was clearly going to be a second tier kind of guy uh, given this draft class. So... I just, I just don't understand. Uh, it seemed like it was, it really went from like, oh, you need to blow our socks off if you want Alex the Brincat to we want, we want to trade him away right now, immediately. It's imperative, uh, and I don't understand why that kind of shift in attitude happened. And you know, I don't, I don't think it's the right call either. You put yourself in a bad spot to get a bad return. I feel like Kyle Davidson in Chicago right now is operating with multiple premises and this is the conclusion hear me out all right we have premise number one we are never going to trade seth jones because we just won't be able to premise number two we will never be competitive with seth jones on our team it will be impossible and conclusion therefore we should plan our are being competitive for eight years from now when Seth Jones is off the books and Debrinko will be Nuts. 32 and Doc will be 29. <laughs> so let's just trade them all for picks right now while we can. Now, obviously I'm, I'm kind of joking, but this is the only way 
I can possibly logic out why this is the group of players you choose to do away with amidst to rebuild. Yeah, I honestly like unless yeah, you got to be planning for like a seven year rebuild at this point, right? Like this is not even the peak of their value. You could argue that they still have more development to do, and you're kind of selling low. Uh, it's just it's mystifying, and we can talk about you know how they didn't even qualify Dylan Strom, who was their one C last year. And whose qualifying offer would have come in at around like three point four million dollars? I mean, like you know, that's pricey, sure. But what the the other the other alternative is to lose him for nothing. And this qualifying offer was going to be the same no matter what. And so to not have planned for this, and instead having to you know let him walk to UFA, insane. Same for Kubalik. To a lesser degree, he's not as you know good, and he's kind of regressed in the last year. Didn't have a good season. But even so, young asset. And so why are you letting these two RFAs walk for nothing? It's insane. How do they not? How do they not plan for this? It's like you know, there's been talk about this for the last week, but like, did they just decide in the last week? And if not, like, why didn't you ship them out to the trade deadline? You could have gotten a fucking boatload uh, for a young player like them, an RFA. Crazy. Cra- they, 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 they're completely directionless. I like to kind of reserve judgment on players who don't get qualifying offers for like a couple days to, until I see where they actually end up. Because oftentimes, um, their team does, you know, really try to keep them and does just does his type of things to, like, avoid arbitration. And there's a chance they come back. I, I'm not getting that sense at all in this scenario, though, with Chicago. Because of, you know, the Debrinkin doctrine and the fact that they their, their goal these days just seems to be to get rid of their best players under 26. And even them, if that means... You get nothing for them. That would kind of be in line with what they've been doing lately. So, you know, say Kubelik and Strom do walk, then all of a sudden, obviously, you know, in advance of free agency, of course, but under team control, you may be looking at Sam Lafferty, second-line center for Chicago next year. That's what Cap Friendly already has listed. Oh, my God. This is, honestly, I don't know if we've seen a teardown of a team of at, at this proportion. Of like young players, an exodus of young players. That's what's crazy to me. It's one thing if you have a bunch of like, you know, like 28, 29 year olds and you're like, okay, our window's passed. Let's sell everybody. Um, but this is like a solid core. It's not, you know, a great core by any means, but it's like a solid group of young players who are all like under 25 and you're just calling it. What? I, what are you trying to do here? Like, okay, we're going to tank for Bedard. But what if you do win? And that's, you know, getting and surround lucky. him with Mackenzie Entwistle and Boris Kachuk. <laughs> you got the worst roster in the NHL by mile. And I just don't see how they come out of this in the next, like, seven years. So, like, what? You you draft Connor Bedard and what the plan is to, to suck until he's, like, 26? I just... what What's the vision here? <laughs> what the fuck? And that, of course, brings us to the Chicago, Chicago's first pick itself, Kevin Korczynski. Um, <laughs> first of all, seventh overall is too high. I think everyone would agree. There is a high ceiling there, but I think it will be very tough to reach due to the fact that he is defensively incompetent and he's a defenseman. But Carl Davidson and the Blackhawks don't seem to mind because Carl Davidson, like right afterward in an interview, said, we were trying to acquire a first-round pick with the specific goal of drafting Kevin Korczynski. So, basically, you know, they're thinking, like, 
whether we acquired, uh, you know, they got the 13th pick eventually, whether they got, you know, the 11th or the 9th or the 7th. They were like, great. Now we got a shot at drafting Kevin Korczynski. That was the mindset. Keep that in mind. And now realize slash learn that right after they make the pick, camera pans to Korczynski. He very clearly mouths, what? As he, you know, laughs and gets up and hugs his family. And we found out afterward, he had never spoken with anyone with Chicago. He had no idea they were interested in them. And yet he was the one they were like, we got to get him. We got to get him. And they never even spoke to him. How insane is that? I feel like I, how, you know, maybe in the later rounds, you trust your scouts on some guys, but how is it that you are ever drafting anyone in the first round that you've never spoken to as a, anyone who works for a team as a GM, I'd be extremely uncomfortable drafting anyone in the top two or three rounds that I had never even had a conversation with. Yeah. That's for any job. Um, but let alone like the stakes of this one and, oh, that's just, that's such an insane process to abide by. Like who else were they talking to? Were they not talking to anybody? Were they a bunch of like, you know, a bunch of shut-ins and they just didn't want to talk to any prospects. They trusted the scouts. Cause you know, if you're literally trading into the first round to get this guy, who else should you be talking to? Like if there's nobody else that you kind of really want, you're wasting your time, aren't you? Uh, and I, yeah, to, to go ahead. And to have him as your, you know, first of all, to have him as an organ, to have one prospect as an organizational priority like this, big red flag, big red flag, because <laughs> you should never be enamored, so enamored with a prospect like this, especially one that, you know, is in a cluster of like, you know, say like maybe 15 guys of, you know, oh, it's, it's hard to tell who's really that much better. So are you getting so much value by drafting this one guy, uh, you know, Kevin Korchinski over, I don't know. Pavel Menchukov or Denta Matejchuk. I don't think the, the, there's a great jump. If there is one at all, you could argue, you know, that Korczynski is maybe the third best out of those three, depending on your prospect analysis. And so, yeah, to, to really kind of shift everything, um, to shift your entire organization around this guy, who then they didn't even interview. This organization has not run well at all. You can tell it. Um, and it's just, it doesn't make sense at all none of their moves make sense. That's the thing at this point. It's just fat L's all around. Except drafting Frank Nazar. That was a very nice pick. Yeah, I hope I hope they interview I I hope they interviewed him. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, but in terms of acquisition wise and strategy and maybe even prospect analysis. Really Kevin Korczynski is the guy you want to take a 7 overall. You're like so committed to the bit. It's just, it's questionable. And I think they're going to be bad for a very, very long time, which is not good for the NHL, mind you. Big ticket market. And they're going to be bad for like eight years, at least. There's no rebounding from this. There's no, the best case scenario is Connor Bedard is like Connor McDavid and you're the Oilers. And we both know we don't have a particularly friendly outlook of the Oilers. So I don't really see the, the successful path forward here. Who's who's the dry title going to be in that scenario? There isn't one. You just kind of have to hope exactly. that Bedard, Bedard single-handedly drags the team instead of having a one-two punch that even Edmonton has. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> rough. I see Kevin Korchensky turning into like a Tyson Berry. I feel like that's a great comparable, and it works with the Oilers thing too. Yeah, absolutely. What a home run. That's, that's, a, that's a great comparable. Great analysis. Uh, Thank you. Because... 
Yeah, and, and I don't have faith in Chicago's. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. You gotta, you gotta have faith that they're gonna develop this defense, the same development program that just you know failed Kirby Doc for three years. So, yikes. Yeah, Chicago was drafting like so many defensemen for like a, from like twenty seventeen to nine something like that, something in that range. It was like look at all these their prospects they have. You know, there was Adam Bocuse, of course, who they ended up trading, uh, Nicholas Baudin, Ian Mitchell. Wyatt Kalanick, all these guys. Oh, Chicago's defense is going to be set. You, we've heard nothing from them. They, you know, some the bunch of them got a cup of coffee and then are now toiling in the minors as they approach like 23, 24 years old. Man, this this <laughs> this organization might be a failure of historic proportions heading into the future. Like, it's unbelievable just how bad, just how in bad shape they are. The, the the prospects aren't working out, and everybody that did work out, you fucking shipped them out, and they're all young. There's nothing left. It's completely barren. And they went from like you know a semi successful, you know they were okay. They weren't particularly good at all. Nobody kind of really believed in Chicago, but now you're looking at like Arizona Buffalo levels of failure and kind of the mismatch, the mismanagement to go with it. All in the span of like what two days? Crazy, nuts. All right, let's let's cap off Chicago talk by talking about the fact that the Seth Jones trade from last summer, all the picks involved have now been made, um, and also the second round pick Columbus acquired last year was like a day later traded for Jake Bean. So with that in mind, the trade is now Seth Jones, Nolan Allen, and sixth round pick Dominic James to Chicago, with Adam Boquist, Jake Bean, Cole Sillinger and David Yerichek to Columbus. So along with, you know, getting a great pick last year, 12th overall Cole Sillinger, who made the jump right away and was very good, Chicago basically rebuilt Columbus's defense with that trade. Um, you know, <laughs> Boquist, Yerichek, uh, Jake Bean could all, you know, play, you know, play in the top four at some point and round that out with Zach Wierenski. It is possible that three quarters of the top two pairings in Columbus in the future came straight from that deal. Oh my god, that's insane. Uh, and that's robbery. And we knew it the moment it happened. And now what? Now what does Chicago have? The contract kicks in in a few days, doesn't it? That's that that's mm-hmm. Seth Jones extension. Uh so just eight more years of misery starting in two days. Uh yeah. They they just completely crippled themselves. And you know, Stan Bowman it was yeah, Stan Bowman made that trade, right? It just man, what an absolute train wreck. And that's completely sewered the organization. And yeah, imagine this team if they hadn't sold everybody and they have the the year check cylinder kind of combo on the team. So much better. You're feeling much better about the Chicago Blackhawks. Instead, now they're just a yep. dead black hole of an organization. Not to mention, if they had their sixth overall pick this year, they probably wouldn't have felt the desperate need to trade to bring it to get pick number seven. And maybe they wouldn't, have, you know, maybe they actually pick up a, a worthy defenseman at the, at that range. Uh, not having to well, imagine they would have passed on Juracek to take Korchinski at number six. That would have been that would have been jokes. <laughs> I, I I in this in this hypothetical vision, I'm hope I'm assuming that they go for Juracek, uh, and you know it's like daisies and roses, and the Blackhawks look much better, and they don't reach for Kevin Korchinski, even though they mm-hmm. ended up taking him one pick later. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Let's let's. I guess we can kind of walk through. You know day one a little bit more um where first of all arizona 
moved up with their late first, an early second, and a mid second to slot number 11, where they took Connor Geeky, who we are both not fans of. Uh, who I said, you know, I probably wouldn't consider him to late 20s because he reminds me of Michael Rasmussen. You know, he's not a very good skater. Arizona seems to think he can be, you know, the second-line center of the future, right? But Cooley Geeky as the one-two punch. I believe in Cooley. I think that Geeky outlook is extremely optimistic. I think it's a reach at 11 to begin with, and the fact that he is the target that you move up for uh, makes me strongly question what kinds of players you value um and it also makes me feel like you're just looking for a variety of players for the sake of variety because of how different those two centers are yeah or maybe they just they just like the Connor geeky style a bit too much and yeah i to trade up for this guy is really the crime um I don't know how you can be so enamored with him. Especially, you look down the list of, like, the picks that came afterwards, that there's Matejchuk, like, fucking Frank Nazar. How, you know, like, uh, and, like, Lakira yeah. Mackey was still on the board, and, like, so was Kamel. It's just, there were so many, there were, there were clearly better prospects available at that point. And, like, if you wanted Connor Geeky and you wanted to trade up for him, 11 is way too high. And if he goes earlier, fine. But he's not worth it. That's the thing. The value that you get for, like, the, 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 the Excess value you get from drafting this guy at eleventh overall. Eleventh overall, no matter how good you think it, he is, is very little, because I think we can all agree, even the most optimistic of Connor Geeky fans, don't place him at anywhere really higher than what, maybe ten. Um, and so, you know, you're you're getting a, a guy who slid one spot in the most optimistic of views. Uh, it just, you know, there's there's no, you know, like if you want to trade up, fine, get a guy who slid, right. That's how I see it. And mm. I don't think anybody thinks that Connor Geeky slid at any point. And so it doesn't make sense to go all the way to 11. And yeah, it makes you question their prospect analysis. You look at their other pick too. Um, their, their third pick in the, in, in the first round. Fucking Maverick Lamerer at 29. Like, <laughs> insane. Not a first-round defenseman whatsoever. Uh, so, you know, Logan Cooley, great pick. I'm a fan of Logan Cooley. You could have taken Shane Wright, who's probably arguably the better prospect. And then you followed up with this bullshit in the rest of the second, first round. Uh, you see why this organization sticks. Just bad drafting. I'm guessing you saw Lamoureux's parents. Uh, I, I don't remember the bit. You'll have to remind me. Oh, oh well, after their son was drafted, uh, they, they, they French kissed basically on ESPN in front of the <laughs> oh, whole world. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Fuck, that was him. That was his parents. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a red flag. Um, <laughs> also, like, everyone was saying Lamaru, which is definitely the wrong pronunciation, but I heard it so much that I accidentally said it also. It's Lamoura. Yeah. Well, you know, English people, Anglophones, tough pronunciation if you don't live in Quebec, I guess. Um, okay. Yeah. That's, that's that's how I excuse them. I don't know how... Did I just say his name, Lamu? Her? I think you said it right. Okay. Good for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, props to Columbus for taking the big swing on Matejchuk. I was I was convinced he was going to slide based on Bob's list and short defenseman and all that. But uh, Columbus, great eye for defenseman these days, I guess. Yeah. Um, then Chicago Frank Nazar. Winnipeg reached on uh, Rutger McGrory, which I thought someone might with the, the leadershipiness. 
Um, but let's talk about uh, how correct I was in my hot take that Joachim Kamel would fall out of the top 10. I didn't think he would fall that far. Uh, but I he had slide written all over him. The way it's like, yeah, he's a great goal scorer, but how much more is there to his game? He got injured and he slowed down in the second half. This is the type of thing that typically turned teams all the way off. And this guy who was producing like crazy in the Liga as a teenager for a couple months at the beginning of the year fell all the way to number 17 to Nashville. Yeah, great call. Uh, you can feel vindicated on that one, A1. Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you feel on the, on the value of Kamel? Because I know like NHL teams are turned off. Are you equally as turned off on the guy? Or you think he went a bit too far? Did he slide too far down? I think I think he's I think he slid too far for sure. I talk, you know I didn't I didn't love him. I don't think he's a slam dunk. I don't right. think he's like I don't think this is like a Caulfield level goal scorer, Caulfield type slip or anything like that. Um, but at seventeen, I do think he was he was by far the best player available at that point. Uh, and the ups the upside is clear. The upside is definitely higher than Rutger McGrory's upside. I think it's higher than Noah Oslin's upside. Um, I think he should have no way gotten past like 13 or 14. Yeah, that's probably right. So Nashville with a, with a, with a sick pick. Um, yeah, let's let's move further down. Liam Bichelle went. That's, that's a very Dallas hey, your pick, favorite. Yeah, my <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this dude. Um, yeah, this feels like a Dallas pick through and through. When they, when they made him, I was like, ah, oh, yeah. This is the kind of fucking middle-of-nowhere uh, organization that's going to take Leanne Bichelle in the top 20. Fucking insane. Yeah, people were making fun, for obvious reasons, of like, you know, what the draft analysts on Sportsnet or whatever say, and really stood out for this one, because they, it's like, oh, you can't teach size, he's a big boy who can skate, all these, like, meaningless <laughs> things. Uh, and, um... Oh, what was it? Oh, for the, and I think for this one, someone mentioned like, oh, and they think they're going to lose John Klingberg too. So they drafted a defenseman. It's like, <laughs> if that's the logic of, we're like, oh, we got to take a defenseman who might make the NHL in like three years because we are currently losing a totally different style defenseman. What are you thinking? And I, I don't think that's what Dallas was thinking. So in conclusion, that analysis is completely pointless. Yeah, absolutely. Just, well, you know, a lot of these TV guys, First of all, you, you got to give props to them because uh, they're just like, you know, talking, talking for, for hours on end. But at the end of the day, you could probably talk better. Um, and there's a lot of meaningless shit. Whether it's really any hockey only podcast, have to talk you think for about like, it. What, two, three minutes there's a lot of fucking, so, my, you know, there's a lot of like ears that is wasted about all of them these enough, broadcasts saying nothing And you'll have a super easy time uh, because you're getting yeah, a new especially topic. Especially when it comes to this kind of prospect. player to talk about handed to you It's the size one where they don't have much to talk about when it comes to their skill. So they have to really lean on like other shit. That doesn't mean anything um, where, you know, you get that kind of shit, uh, that kind of analysis. Um, yeah, looking further down, Liam Ogren went 19. Uh, oh, Mir Shosenko went to the Capitals at 20. Uh, that's, you know, I don't think a lot of people, too many people had him, like, actually picked in the top 20 because of kind of everything that's gone on with him on top of him being Russian. Uh, but I like it. I like it for the Capitals. You know, this organization isn't trying to contend anytime soon, really. So take a swing. Go for it. Big, big ups to the Caps. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely surprised that, that he ended up going before Danilo Yurov. Um, I think Minnesota did end up getting a steal like four bigs later. Uh, I just, I guess, I get, you know, you talk about Maroshnichenko. Oh, he was like, you know, 
ranked in the top five a bit before the year, before all the complications, that type of thing. Um, so, so I can see how Washington may have that preference, I suppose, but it was a bit of a surprise anyway. Yeah. I like it though. I like it though. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Minnesota, uh, getting an absolute steal. Some, somebody that some people, a lot of people had them in the, in their top 10, uh, you're off sliding all the way to 24. That's probably a Russia related thing. That's, that's, I think that's a big factor. Um, did I hear that he was the one that's going to stay in the cage off the next little while? Hello? Hello? Oh. Oh, you, you, uh, the internet, I think, cut out for a second there. I wasn't sure if you were still talking or not. Oh, okay. What, what was the last thing you heard? Oh, uh, about Yurov. Yeah, Sliding. I just, I, yeah, yeah, I, I mentioned that, you know, a lot of people had them in the top 10. And then, uh, I, I asked, uh, what, this, is he the guy who, he's going to stay in the KHL for the next little while, right? Was that him? Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't know what. Uh, is he? Is he still under contract there? Hmm. Let me look that up. All right. Anyway, Anyways. I think you know, great value pick for Minnesota. Uh, Anaheim, uh, two picks before that, ended up being the team to bite on Nathan Gaucher in the first round, who we said someone would. Um, and that allowed St. Louis, <laughs> the steal of the draft. That might be a bit of a stretch. Oh my god. That might be a bit. Of a, uh, that's okay. I won't go quite that far, but I think they made out gloriously with my favorite player, 14th ranked by me, Jimmy Snuggerud. This this player is going to play in St. Louis's top six. Calling it right now. He's going to become a, a mainstay on the power play. He's going to play in the penalty kill too. He's going to score 30 goals one year. It's all going to happen for Jimmy Snuggerud. That's my that's my my guarantee, putting my stamp on it. He's your guy. He really is, isn't he's he? My, he's got a fun name. He's, he's and, my uh, guy. Yeah, this yeah. is... This is how this is how scouts and GMs feel when they're like, this player is our guy. That's how I feel about Jimmy Snuggerud. <laughs> so you're getting the Chicago Kevin Korchinski experience. How does it feel? Uh, it feels great because I didn't pick a player who's incompetent defensively. <laughs> what a home run. Um, yeah, so if we look at 25, uh, Chicago took Sam Renzel, which in itself is a boring pick and perhaps a bit of a reach. Uh, but it's how they got that pick. That's interesting uh, because... Uh, they, this was formerly the Maple Leafs pick, uh, but the Leafs decided enough of Peter Mrazek and his anchor of a contract, like almost $4 million. And so they traded back 13 picks. Uh, they traded 25 for 38. Uh, and yeah, they, they wiped their hands clean of that Mrazek contract. Um, sure seems like the Habs, eh, not the Habs, the, the Leafs got off easy. Only 13 picks to uh, get rid of this contract that everybody knew they need to get rid of ASAP. Yeah. So the Leafs apparently were really eyeing Liam Ogren, and it was a long shot. He was going to fall to 25, but that's who they were holding out for. Once he was gone, they were like, all right, Chicago, let's uh, let's make this happen. And the difference between pick 25 and 38, value-wise, everyone seems to agree, is, is basically a late-round pick, like sixth or seventh-round pick. So they did get off pretty easily. Um... But I, I also look at it from the vantage point of Chicago where Mrazek is, you know, you're trying to tank and he's the perfect tank goalie. You know, he's like, 
we can play him for 60 games and he can suck and we don't have to worry about development or anything like that. You know, you don't want an ECHL guy in there. He's been around in the NHL for a while and he might still be bad. Um, so I see why Chicago's like, yeah, sure. We'll take him on and move up in the draft. Uh, I, I can see the fit there. Um, I also, I so a lot of people were comparing this to the Zach Cassian one that happened a few picks later. And how, you know, Edmonton had to give up so much more to get rid of of that of Cassian's cap hit. They what did they do? They moved back uh three spots, but also I think gave up like a second and a third in future years. And everyone's going, What Cassian like cost like two hundred thousand less for I think the same amount of time. Why did the Oilers give up so much more? And I find it very odd that no one seems to really be putting it together that like Morazic does fill a need for Chicago and that that is absolutely why Toronto was able to leverage like, Oh, you know, Morazic's like exactly what you're looking for type of thing. If that's really the case, that's another insane move by Chicago. Cause yes, agree. You can get that. You can get that shit anywhere. You, you know, first of all, you don't have to pay $4 million for it. Well, you can get that anybody, any any bum that you want. You can sign him in in free agency. Thomas Grice. Yeah, sure. Why the hell not? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what he's done for the last God knows how many years in Detroit. Um, just, you know, you could have extorted Toronto much more and to, you know, take the bait on like, oh, this is going to be our goalie of the future of the rebuild. It's crazy. It's, well, no, the I just of the tank, just of like the yeah, two years. Right. The, the, the bridge goalie. Fine. I, goalie, the, I, you cannot be sold on Mrazic as a goalie of anything to the point where, like, you know, you're basically giving up assets. Maybe not giving up, giving up assets, but it's the opportunity cost where you could have gotten much more because this this was, you know, Toronto was in such a bad spot with Mrazic. Everybody knew they needed to get rid of him. And to be like, oh, he could be a usable piece. Sure, a usable piece, but very easily replaceable. Uh, and you just helped Toronto out a whole shit ton with that one. Yeah, the, the deal for Toronto also, like, opening the door for jabronis like Steve Simmons to be like, I can't believe they had to give up a first-round pick to get out of the Peter Morazic contract. Just people who either deliberately uh, don't understand or, you know, just baiting, which I imagine Steve Simmons would be the latter. Yeah. That, that <laughs> That's peak baiting. It is not possible to be that short-sighted. It, it can't. It's not, I, don't, I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just totally ignoring the return of the deal. Uh, anyway, so then Montreal took Philip Mishar, two Slovak, two Slovaks in round one for Montreal. Uh, did you see uh, the video of Slavkovsky's reaction? No, I, I didn't see the reaction. I saw the uh, I saw the meeting up afterwards. Oh, solid moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, he had a a good reaction, if you can believe it. Because, you know, they're Crazy. buddies. They've played on teams before. And then when they came up afterwards, Slavkov, she, like, straight up lifted him up and, and hugged him. Like, feet came up off the ground. Um, they're, you know, they're pretty polar opposite in terms of, of style. Or, or maybe not that maybe not quite the case. I mean, in size, they definitely are. But Mashar is more, you know, shifty, fast type of guy. Whereas Slavkovsky, of course, is successful at being a power forward. So... Uh, and they they play the opposite wings too. Slavkovsky's a left winger, 
Mashar is a right winger. Um, but Mashar being the pick there also facilitated the the Lambert slide as well as the what was more egregious in my eyes, the Isaac Howard slide. Right. So yeah, I was surprised. Thirtieth overall. I thought he would go earlier. As I said, last week's March draft, I have him at fucking eighth overall, which, you know, granted it was high. But I have belief in the guy. And yeah, to see him and Isaac Howard kind of fall all the way to where they did, you know, it's it's mystifying. Because if you look at the picks that come beforehand, you know, we have like fucking the Sharks taking Philip Bystead. You have the Coyotes. We talked about taking Maverick Lemuger. Um, it's just, I I don't understand how you don't take that kind of gamble with the skill and the skating, especially with Lambert, uh, where, yeah, it's just instead they, they want a different direction. I understand there's red flags and whatnot, but at the end of the day, I would have taken him earlier. Uh, and the Jets got a steal. Great pick for Winnipeg. And uh, for Tampa Bay, almost equally as good. I know Isaac Howard's your guy. You can talk about him. Oh, I wanted to talk about... I find Lambert more interesting to discuss, though, because, yeah, great pick for Winnipeg. But Scouching brought up, like, out of all the teams that could, you know, get the most out of Lambert's potential, Winnipeg is very far down the list. Because, you know, just, you know, I guess Lambert's obviously not like a Patrick Laine level player, but you look at how they treat how they treated Patrick Laine how they treated, you know, players like Vili Hainala. Basically, you know, young players, they want to try to, you know, to mold into whatever, you know, their dream defensive, whatever type penalty kill type thing, you know, which is, you know, a problem that many development systems and coaches have. And a Rick Bonus, of all people, assuming he's around for the foreseeable future, which, of course, is not a foregone conclusion. But if he is, uh, wouldn't help with that. And Winnipeg is very prone to, you know, if they give Brad Lambert like a try on the third line and things don't go well, they might send him back to the AHL for, you know, 15 games. This is, of course, probably a year or two down the line when Lambert is on the cusp of making it. Um, But basically the idea is if you want to get the most out of Brad Lambert, you're probably going to have to let him roam free a little bit. And there aren't many teams that may be willing to do that. Yeah, I see it. I see that it's not a good fit. Um, but raw value pick wise, I think that I, you know what? I'll I'll give Winnipeg the benefit of the doubt. Um, these are a lot of tools to work with, and yes, their past history has shown that they have not done well with such tools and development and whatnot, and having patience with their prospects. But who knows? Maybe Brad Lambert's just a oh, generational sure. talent who's going to break the Winnipeg mold. A mold. I'm counting <laughs> okay. on it. Okay. Uh. Let's talk now about the fact that we were at day two. Why don't we do that as we move forward to that next day, July 8th? Hell yeah. So here, here's how our day went. So, we, you know, we got downtown. Uh, Rogers was down. So uh, the place we went for breakfast was only taking cash. Uh, but that was fine. We sat. We ate. Uh, my sister was there, too. There were three of us. And we saw a prospect walk in, and we still don't know who it was to this day. I thought, oh, is that Owen Pickering? I even thought about him and Jimmy Snuggerud. We were trying to figure out. His face looked extremely familiar, and he was wearing a gray suit. And he was very tall and you know, looked athletic. And he walked in. He sat at a table where his 
presumed family had like already ordered for him and he ate and then got up and left. So he wasn't in there for that long. He was clearly in a rush to get somewhere, probably the bell center. And the re I think it might've been, a, I'm pretty sure it was a day one prospect because his face looked like I'd seen it on TV the night before. Um, but we still know who it was. Have you made any new revelations in this, this ongoing, uh, mystery no i have i've made zero progress i know you know your sister and i and you included we all did try to do some detective work uh did some some furious googling while he ate in the background uh yeah no, to no avail i think you know maybe this maybe this is like a cold case that'll solve itself in in, in a while you know maybe in a year or two I'm like oh fuck that was breakfast man <laughs> and like he's yeah. making his nhl debut and it's a great thing um but yeah almost certainly a draft prospect though because like you know, at, at this time of year, you know, first of all, the fact that he had to, like, rush out of there in time for, like, 11 o'clock when the draft started, big draft vibes, but also any young dude in a suit with his family looking kind of touristy, definitely a draft prospect. So, you know, there, I don't think there's a doubt in my mind that he was off to the Bell Center. That's 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 step number one. But step number two, uh, we we still have not figured out exactly who it was, although perhaps later on this week. I shall do some more Googling of the faces to see if any of them ring a bell. Um, so then we, uh, we you know, walk towards the bell center. It's about 1040 or so at this point. Things starts at 11. We're right outside the front. And there were more prospects, way more prospects, just hanging around in front of the building than I expected there would be. I thought they might go through some kind of like, you know, special. Ent- they were just out in the open. Bunch of tall guys in suits just standing around chatting. I was like, this is so cool. And then you'll never guess who we saw walking in our direction. It was Steve Dangle, just like just straight there walking, you know, in front of the Bell Center. And I saw him right away. And without even thinking, as if he would know, recognize me, I went, Steve, Steve. <laughs> and in hindsight, there was probably a more polite way I could have gone about things, but I'm sure people do that to him all the time. And he seemed extremely used to it. Like he has this, you know, protocol or, or internal script that he does. He, you know, he walked to us, you know, friendly smile. He asked who we were there to see, which I thought was odd phrasing. Um, I don't know if like he thought we were like related to a prospect or something or like close friends. Um, but I said, you know, off the top of my head, they're like, oh, you know, we're kind of Habs fans. And he pretended to walk away, which I imagine he's done many, many times before. And then he started talking about like, oh, yeah, they had a great day yesterday. I think they're going to have another great day today, you know, given his perspective on things. And we took a picture and then he was uh, he was off on his merry way. So uh, and then you actually you said to me right afterward, like, was he with producer Drew? Because there was someone with him holding like some kind of microphone which is why like I thought they were kind of in a rush. Um but uh but yeah, so it was a very quick conversation, but then I think I saw s- someone else uh, come up afterward and like bug him for a picture too. Yeah, I might just the, the sheer like <laughs> the luck involved in this interaction uh cuz we were really like walking like we were like bound to meet. we were going to run into each other. Um if you if you hadn't to if you hadn't like you know flagged him. Um but yeah, I was uh yeah, I was a big fan of uh, you know, your 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 very your very familiar greeting for the fellow. Um now, if only you had 
if only we had the, the same enthusiasm for a future famous person that we had seen later that day uh maybe we would have gotten a picture <laughs> there too uh, <laughs> um so yeah that that was the steve dangle meeting i <laughs> the per, the famous person i'm referring to is uh later on as we're i don't know you know, i'll break the chronological order uh because this is just too important uh not not to mention um so we're, okay, we're walking okay. around this the, is like the mid sixth round this next one that's right that's right so we decide to get out of our seats walk around you know the the ground floor uh walk see some prospects and whatnot and uh we're walking around when right outside uh the the doors that he's walking out or no he was he didn't we didn't see him walk out he was uh surrounded by a few people was a none other than a very active general manager recently pierre fucking dorian himself the you know the most iconic general manager currently <laughs> crazy. in the league. That's nuts, nuts. He's just fucking standing there, uh, and you know he's like I think he took, you know took took some pictures with some people. Um, but yeah, he seemed to be busy. He was talking to somebody else who I did not recognize, probably some sort of scout or something. Um, but yeah, he was just walking about Pierre fucking Doran. Unfortunately, we did not have the balls uh, to ask him for a picture. Uh, but just the fact that you know I was standing within a few feet of the guy. Just an incredible moment that he was the general manager that we saw. All right. Well, well, let's see. It's not that we didn't have the balls to ask him for a picture exactly. So, so as we saw him, he was already like taking pictures with fans. As the draft is ongoing, Pierre Dorian is just out here in the hallway taking pictures, and people, are, hey, can I, can I get one? Can I get one? Can I get one? There were like probably ten people crowded around, and they all wanted to know their picture or whatever. And as it went on, it kind of looked like it had already been going on for like a minute by the time we got there. And as it kept going, we were like, you know, lingering in the area. Like, are we going to have a chance to swoop in here looking for our chance? But then he was like, all right, let's get this going, please. Fast, fast. I kind of got to go fast, please. So if we did, you know, really be dicks and we're like, us too, us too. Uh, he probably would have, you know. Ben just looked extremely perturbed and annoyed in the photograph, which could have been funny anyway. But I figured, you know, we'll let him, we'll let him get back out to work. You know, we'll let, we'll let him get back. You know, his boss, you know, Eugene Melnick's daughters are probably going to be pretty angry if he's gone from the table for too long. So, uh, so we'll let him go. And he kind of, you know, walked and talked to some other guy, uh, who I don't know if it's a coworker. That's my guess. And then they walked back in. Um, but we were. Indeed, very close to Pierre Dorian. And our plan that we concocted in that moment is like, all right, we got to compliment the Alex DeBrinket trade, pretend we're Sens fans, and then ask uh, what the deal is with Matt Murray and break the news on Twitter. That's right. Become insiders right on the dot. Um, I don't think we talked about that Matt Murray saga, yeah. actually, uh, when we were discussing the DeBrinket trade, uh, because, yeah. Oh, yeah, we didn't. <laughs> that's, that's a whole crazy story on its own, because it's clear now, Sens have made it, a pretty big priority at this point because they keep trying to do it uh, to trade away that contract. I think a lot of it is, at this point, it's clear that it's not about cap space. They just can't afford the guy's contract, right? They just want to get rid of the money because I think he's, he's got like a backloaded contract. And so he's getting paid more than the $6 million his, his cap hit is. Uh, and yeah, they've made it a priority. And it sounds like they had a deal in place with the Buffalo fucking Sabres uh, where they trade away the same seventh overall pick that they, you know, they ended up trading away to get Alex DeBrincat for uh, in exchange for the 16th overall pick. And they got rid of Matt Murray's contract. Um, and that was earlier that day. And it, the only the only thing that stopped that from happening, that absolute fleecing of the Ottawa Senators, uh, was Matt Murray himself because he has a 
modified no trade. And uh, on that list was Buffalo. And he, you know, as is his right, enforced that no trade. And so uh, Matt Murray saving the Senators from themselves and uh, allowing them to seamlessly acquire Alex DeBrincat. He's the unsung hero in this in this whole debacle. Yeah, so that that is one way to look at things. Like, oh, Matt Murray saved the Sens pick, and then it helped him get Dabrinka like four hours later. Another way to look at this is, if Ottawa had moved down to pick sixteen, made that deal, do you really think they would have been unable to get Dabrinka with the sixteenth instead of the seventh pick, based on what we now know about how Chicago's been acting? You know, they might have at that point been like, oh, instead of seventh, thirty ninth, and a third rounder in a future year, how about sixteenth, thirty ninth, and a second and fourth rounder in a future year. And Chicago would have been like, okay. Maybe. But if you think about, you know, we talk about Chicago strategy, they're like Korchinski stands. Maybe they think 16th overall just yeah, and then, isn't good enough. And then they would have had 16th and 13th with the dock trade. And that would have been definitely been enough to move up into Korchinski range if they wanted to. Are you saying Matt Murray robbed us of a fun timeline in which Chicago gives up the 16th and the 13th overall pick to trade up to get Kevin Korchinski? That is absolutely what I'm saying, yes. (laughs) So depending on who you ask, Matt Murray is either a hero for the Ottawa Senators or a villain (laughs) to all hockey fans for having ruined a prospective uh, Kevin Korczynski trade-up. But either way, uh, the saga continues because he still isn't traded and it's it's clear that Ottawa wants to trade him. And so the rumor now, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, is that uh, Toronto is the team in the running. Absolutely insane. Um, but that's the, that's really the team that's been linked. Now, obviously nothing's materialized, but yeah, everywhere I look, it sounds like, you know, Toronto's interested in Matt Murray because they don't have a goalie and maybe they want to pair him with somebody, but you know, acquiring that contract mystifying and I sure hope it happens. All right. Here's the, here's the, the Matt Murray to Toronto. Here's my, my take on things. So, oh, well, to start with, Matt Murray's a former Sioux Greyhound, so that solves that mystery of why Kyle Dubas <laughs> wants to acquire him. But anyway, um, I would understand and kind of be on board if there was, A, a double retention involved so that the cap it was less than three, um, and B, if I knew Kyle Dubas was still like super committed to bringing Jack Campbell back and you wanted to roll out a Jack Campbell-Matt Murray tandem that cost about eight eight and a half million dollars i feel like you can live with that and that is a pretty good tandem the problem is kyle dubas has gone on record saying we want to acquire one starting goalie and then let eric shalgren and joseph wall compete for the backup spot joseph wool sorry uh and if you go out and get matt murray now the strong implication is that's the one goalie we were talking about you're gonna make a matt murray your starter you want to win a stanley cup with him after Three bad years in a row. That's extremely ill-advised. Um, and if they commit to this, and you know, amidst the Jack Campbell negotiations, where well, the numbers that are being floated for Jack Campbell, I think, and apparently it's Toronto and Edmonton are the big front runners, all seem very reasonable. And I think Toronto, who should be extremely desperate to bring him back, should be very willing to pony up like a five and a half million AAV for a starting goalie of that caliber. Uh, but if you, if you'd rather, you know, go the Matt Murray route, I mean, best of luck to you. That's right. Uh, (laughs) 
there's there's they, they should have no leverage at this point, right? And, and the fact that Campbell's not trying to extort them for like seven million dollars, uh, should be a gift that falls right in their laps and that they should take advantage of, uh, because mm-hmm. you know the the goalie, you know the, the musical chairs are kind of playing right now, and it sure sounds like Toronto's at risk of being left out without a capable starting goalie. And I do not qualify Matt Murray as a starting, a qualified, a capable starting goalie in any capacity, let alone for one team that you know wants to get over the hump. You think? You think? Really think Matt Murray is going to help you get over that first round curse uh, with all with all the great teams that are in the Atlantic? Give me a break. He's terrible. He's trash. He's washed. Uh, and man, but I want to see it happen. I would love to see the entirety of hockey Twitter meltdown over Toronto having Matt Murray as their starting goalie. Um, so, you know, when it comes to these sweepstakes, I am cheering for Edmonton very much uh, to uh, acquire Jack Campbell and to sign, to sign him to a perfectly reasonable contract um, that Toronto will instantly regret not giving him. Yep. Um, I can, I can, I do think Campbell, you know, this also might be Dubis trying to, Maybe he is kind of considering the oh we'll get Murray and try to keep Campbell option. I think that would be much definitely much smarter than just getting Matt Murray and saying problem solved. Uh, and Matt Murray is kind of your like you know if all else fails and Campbell goes somewhere else and Kemper goes somewhere else, at least we'll have someone. Whereas and if we do get someone even better, that might be the thinking right now. Um, but I'll, I won't give them the benefit of the doubt quite yet. We'll see how things play out. Maybe Kyle Dubas really is a big Matt Murray believer. Um, but anyway, let's go back to, to day two of the draft. Um, because And the actual draft picks themselves. I Actually, I filmed the three of us as, the, as round two was about to begin. And we all made our own predictions for who Montreal was going to pick. My sister said Jagger Furcus. You said Lane Hudson at 33. And I said Ryan Chesley, but I'm... I think the smart pick would be Owen Beck. And then Owen Beck was the pick. And then Lane Hudson slipped all the way to number 62 where Montreal got him as well. Um, I mean, the, the, it kind of speaks for itself. If you know what we've been saying about Lane Hudson, especially what you've been saying about Lane Hudson, you know, he's a small defenseman who at his current level is offensively dominant and he slipped because of his size and not much else, not much really else. I know if he had gone in the first round, I think uh, he would have been like the shortest and lightest defenseman to ever get drafted in the first round, something like that. And I guess teams are get scared off by that. But this pick has real home run potential for Montreal. Yeah, absolutely. I guess uh, I was just, he had high Habs vibes all along that I was picking up on. Just the, the wrong Habs pick. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it just... I was a big proponent of Lane Hudson, and all throughout that second round, I was like, "This is the Lane Hudson spot. This is the Lane Hudson spot." Uh, and you know, just he just happened to tumble all the way. I think you know, at the value that they're getting at sixty-two is great. It's fantastic. He's a much better prospect than a lot of the defensemen that went up uh, before him. And yeah, as I said when we were doing our analysis, I put him on like you know maybe slightly below the tier of Korchinski, Matejka, and Minchukov. And uh, there were a whole bunch of defensemen that went after that before Hudson went at 62. So, yeah, great pick. And Montreal overall had a fantastic draft. Uh, one of the better classes. Even getting uh, my guy, Maverick Lemurer, who ended up... Uh, no, not Maverick Lemurer. Fuck. Uh, Miguel Turini. Miguel, <laughs> Miguel Turini. Turini. That's the guy. Kind of. They give similar vibes. I don't know why. Uh, but, 
McGill threw all the way in the seventh round. I one was six, like, they're, they're literally like, yeah. they're like 11 inches apart in height. <laughs> Their names give similar vibes. Uh, but yeah, I, I was like, uh. Miguel Tourney coming up in the third round. And then we just, they just straight up never called him until round seven. So, you know, good for them. Um, but yeah, Habs really went, went, went hard on the upside. The Mayshar pick was very nice. Um, in back in the first round, and uh, yeah, great, good on you. We have that woman on tape, right? <laughs> Owen Beck, what a call! Yeah, yeah, I was filming that. Uh, I on that second round is the big reason why I have as my two big winners of the of the draft. I have Montreal and Seattle. Seattle's the big, big one. Montreal is the big one, and you know they have some some very nice, you know, mid to later round swings. Tourini in the seventh round, I think, is excellent. Cedric Gandon, 127th overall. He's a pretty high skill winger. Could have gone higher. But it's especially Owen Beck and Lane Hudson. They really knocked that second round out of the park and ended the day with four first round caliber players in Slavkovsky, Mashar, Beck, and Hudson. That's an absolutely incredible haul. And Seattle, though, I think, you know, I was not confident in Seattle's drafting. Especially last year, you know, they made the easy number two pick. Maddie Beneers, way to go. Had six more picks in the draft, left a lot of people scratching their heads with some of their choices, especially like overager Riker Evans. They took like very early second round last year. It was like, what are you doing? This year, though, totally different story. Shane Red obviously was the easy one. That's going to be a home run. I do think he's the best player in the draft. They get Jagger Fergus, a first round talent uh, in the second round. Yanni Neiman, I'm a fan of his. Uh, Nicholas Coco, I actually think, you know, in the late second round was was one of the more more underrated goalies in the class. I do think he's in that uh Lane and Tyler Brennan tier and he ended up going well before Tyler Brennan. Uh David Goyette, Ty Nelson as uh an offensive defenseman and he seems to have uh some nice nice spunk. He was wearing uh what, what like a blue hat a or blue whatever. Hat, a light baby blue. Like, Whoa. Yeah. He's wearing a light blue hat. He's a fun guy. And uh I'll also shout out their final pick, 196 overall. Kyle Jackson, because he's an overager or a double overager, I think, but his uh, offensive production exploded in junior this year. So I think there might be there might be a decent prospect there. I think Seattle, out of every team in the league, did the best. Yeah, I think I think I you know throughout all a lot of these articles, I talk about you know the teams that did better um, or had a good you know draft class as of as of today. Um, you, you definitely have to put Seattle there. Um, just uh, yeah, I think, I think these good drafting teams. They, it's always like the second round, the third round, uh, where you can really kind of make your mark because you know obviously you have reaches in the first round, um, but you know it, it is pretty firmly established. It's, it's where you start the second round where people start going like doing whack shit and going off the board, uh, and sometimes it's you know it's really teams that stay the course uh, to this kind of, these kind of consensus rankings. You grab your Jagger Fergus at thirty five, uh, where yeah you end up you know everybody's kind of happy at the end of the day, whether it's Seattle or Montreal. Yeah, for sure. And the big losers, I put two, along with my two winners. Um, the second biggest loser, in my opinion, is the Red Wings. Um, they, I feel like their drafting has gotten progressively worse and worse ever since Eisenman's been there. I, you know, there was the, the cider big swing that ended up working out well. On the day of, that was a head-scratcher. But it feels like they're always going off the board in the second round. And so far... It hasn't really paid off. I mean, I know it's only been like a couple of years. Theodore Niederback looks good, but like Cross Hannes, I think in 2020, was a very strange one. And this year, it's no different. Marco Casper, everyone was tying him to Detroit at eight. That one, 
makes sense. Not exactly, you know, a home run pick per se, but it's it's okay. Uh, Dylan James, 40th overall, was ranked in like in the third round pretty much everywhere. He's a decent winger. Dmitry Bachelnikov was ranked in the late rounds most places. I don't I don't know very much about him. I do know that Lane Hudson was still on the board though. I know Gleb Trokozov was still on the board who Carolina took. And all the way through into the late rounds, uh, it's leaving value on the board. And uh, yeah, this this goes into what we were talking about last week with Detroit not really putting pieces together to form a Stanley Cup contender. having And these very strange drafts play a part in it. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems that their draft philosophy really is, you know, we're going to pick our guys, we're going to trust our scouts, and uh, completely ignore whatever consensus there is. Um, especially with these kind of mid-round picks. And yeah, I think, well, it's just not, it's not a good philosophy because A, it usually doesn't work out, but B, it's just not a good value that you're getting because, you know, these guys that are supposedly so great that you think you can get, you know, are worthy of a second-round pick, you could probably get them later on, you know, because they aren't, uh, you know, consensus second-round picks. Um, And even if they do go, like somebody goes ahead and reaches, good for them. Go and take (laughs) take a consensus guy. Uh, who you could you who you can't get in like the fourth round or whatever, where you could probably get Dmitry Buchelnikov. Um, yeah, there, it's just you know it's there's there's uh I don't know what the kind of bias it is, but it's a sort of bias where they trust their eyes too much. They trust their scouts, and we've talked about you know the consensus. Uh, you know it's not always right. Obviously there are hidden gems. Um, but overall as a general tendency over many draft classes over many picks, um, it tends to have a have a have a good idea over you know, fucking reaching every other pick in the second round. Do you have Detroit's draft class in front of you? I do, yeah. Do you see who they took 137th overall? Tanias Mathurin? Yes, indeed. Left defenseman. Do you notice anything interesting about his name? Oh my god, Tanias is Saint backwards. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's... <laughs> They named him Saint Vagrids. It's a left shot defenseman who had 15 points this year in the OHL. His first name was just Saint Backwards. That's extreme. That's extreme. I gotta say, um, that's an interesting take for a name. That's uh, absolutely yeah. That's wild. I've never seen that one. And the before. other loser, the other yeah. loser of the draft, is Arizona. Now I I saw some. I think I saw in the Athletic like. They were ranked like winners of the draft and losers of the draft, but they they did it in like oh, Colorado's the biggest loser because they only had two picks and they were in the late rounds. So they didn't get many good prospects. It's like this isn't an interesting way to judge a draft. You have to judge by how much value they got relative to where they were picking. And Arizona, who ended up after all their trades with picks three, eleven, twenty nine, thirty six, forty three, sixty seven, ninety four, and you know some later on didn't get anywhere close to the value where they were picking. Logan Cooley, you could sell me on that, even though they passed on Shane Wright. I get it. Connor Geeky, Maverick Lamoureux, we already roasted those picks. Artem Duda, 36th overall. Even Ryan Chesley would have been a better pick than that. Or Seamus Casey, Lane Hudson. They were better defensemen than Artem Duda, who, from all I can tell, uh, is... Similar philosophy to the Lamura pick in that he's, you know, good defensively. Julian Lutz, maybe he'll be like a third-line winger. Miko Matika, 
is another winger whose main thing is big. Jeremy Langlois, 94th overall. I showed you my list where I had him ranked 204 because all the scouting reports said skating is a big concern. That'll be hard to overcome. And nothing really to write home about in the late rounds either. For this rebuilding team who has who is bottoming out these days, you got you got 10 picks in the draft, and I see nothing that I'm like, well done, home run, success. It was a bad draft for the Coyotes. Yeah, that's seven picks in the top 100. And uh, we're, I would be satisfied with only really one of them because I, I buy Cooley. Um, and I understand going for the, the all the upside and the skill that he has. But aside from that, it was like clockwork when we were watching uh, the Coyotes. It's just whenever they came up, it's like, oh, they're going to reach. And that's what they did. And it's not just reaching. It's like, you know, it's like a, it's a, like a prospect philosophy that's all skewed. Um, that, you know, kind of relies on, oh, we're going to do the safe pick. We're going to do, you know, the defensive defenseman or the guy with a high floor uh, or who has size. And, yeah, it's just you, you see that it's just completely off out in Arizona. And this is not how to draft. This is not how you're going to properly rebuild this team. And you're just going to get underwhelming draft class after underwhelming draft class if you can't go for that high upside uh, in these mid-rounds, especially with all these picks. Yes, absolutely. Uh, some other draft class I want to shout out uh, for one reason or another. Buffalo's is interesting. I think they their first round was very good, not great. But they got Matthew Savoy, Noah Ausland, Yuri Kulich, three centers who all have you know varying degrees of upside. I I see what they were going for, and I, I like it. I don't love the Ausland pick, but I see what they're going for. Uh, they're the team that fell in love with Topias Lainanen, took him mid-early second round. Uh, Victor Noichev has, you know, extremely high skill. I think one scout who that who Pronman or Wheeler talked to said he has, like, the best hands in the draft. So that's a big swing at number at in round three. And Mats Lindgren fell all the way to, to 106. That was one player, as he was sliding, we had nine, and we are like, when's Mats Lindgren going to go? When's Mats Lindgren going to go? And Buffalo's the, the team that jumped on him. Yeah, some good value there for sure. Um, the, team I, the team I'm going to go with, uh, positive shout-out, uh, is Carolina. Um, the Hurricanes always seem to do some analytic shit uh, and, you know, draft some uh, some sliders. And th- in this draft, it's clear that their their uh, inefficiency that they've kind of identified uh, is Russian players because, you know, the whole uh, war going on, is there's a lot of uncertainty, especially if you look at, you know, uh, what, was, what was his name, that goalie, Fedotov? Uh, and, you know, apparently Kaprizov might be stuck or is unable to, to come back to the United States right now because he doesn't have a visa. Uh, it's a whole complicated thing, and understandably, teams are scared. But Carolina seems to be taking advantage of that. Uh, they took you know a couple of Russians to start off their draft class. They took Trokozov at 60, Paravalov at 71. Uh, and yeah, they just, just threw out some, some good value uh, because you know, Carolina's not, not a team uh, you know, who has many draft picks in particular. But uh, yeah, they seem to, to swing big on Russian players. They took Gruden in, in the fifth round. Uh, so good shit all around from Carolina. I think it's an interesting strategy. Might not work out, but uh, there's a winger for the fences. Yeah, Grudenin is the one, especially that I think could end up being a hidden gem the later rounds. He's a he's a very mobile defenseman, um, and elite prospects. Adam ranked like just outside the first round. So did uh, so did Scouting. I think Adam within the first round. So. There's there's a lot to there's a lot to like with him. One one last team I want to discuss is Columbus. We already talked about Yurichek and Matejchuk. Yurichek and Matejchuk. Um, 
that could potentially be, you know, people point out, oh, that could be, you know, the great pairing one day or whatever that they get in the top 12. They also did quite well in the later rounds, I found, or at least the mid rounds. Luca Del Belbaluz, we talked about him. Skating, not great, but lots of production, lots of offense. They get him 44th overall. Teammate of Owen Becks, he actually came to give him a hug in the middle of Owen Becks, like uh, media talking or whatever right after his pick. And uh, Jordan Dumay, 96th overall. He is short winger who scores a lot. And if you only looked at the production, you'd say, why isn't this guy going into the top two rounds or maybe even the first round? Um, and it's not just size biased. There are other deficiencies to his game, reasons he slipped. Um, but I do think 96 is great value. And he is one of the players that we actually uh, got a, a look at up pretty close uh, as we were walking around the premises later. We didn't stop for like a picture or to talk to any prospects really, but we saw him. And we were playing, you know, we were trying to, we were looking around at prospects, their jerseys, trying to go quickly on Google Images, see who's who if they didn't have a nameplate. We found out pretty quickly that's Jordan Dumay. Uh, and he looks 14 years old. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> Maybe that's why he kind of slipped to 96. Um, that's that's the <laughs> uh, the vibe. But uh, yeah, solid, solid class. Um, as for other, all the other odds and ends from this draft, um, there were there are now two Elias Pettersons on the Canucks. That's a, that's a solid bid. Yeah. Um, I think they drafted him in the third round or the fourth round. Um, so you know it's funny. It's always funny when there's two people with the same name in this league. Um, it's even crazier when they're on the same in the same organization. Um, so yeah, that's a that's 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 a pretty comprehensive dive into the actual picks. I know there's a bunch of signings and trades that we need to get into. Um, but uh, yeah, is there anything kind of that you want to talk about prospect wise? I want to talk about the fact that we saw Alex Bump pose for a picture, Flyers draft pick Alex Bump, with maybe they were his parents and some other close friend or family member perhaps was taking a picture of them. And as we were walking by, I said, say John Tortorella. And there was like no one else in the the vicinity at that moment except for them and the three of us. So that is a fun fact that I'm very confident no one in the world knows Except for now, I've just told some people, but that was a fun one. Uh, after the draft, as we were standing outside, there was a St. Louis draft pick who uh, was walking kind of towards us with his parents. I think it was Michael Butchinger. And his mom asked someone, can you take a picture of us? Just some random guy. And so this random guy is now taking a picture of this blues draft pick with his parents and asks, were you drafted? <laughs> and he goes, yes. And he says, congratulations. Um, yeah, those are some fun moments. Uh, we saw we saw Pavel Minchikov and Nathan Gaucher walk up to the Ducks box. We saw Jared Bednar sign an autograph. Um, apparently, Slavkovsky came out to where we were like 20 minutes after we left. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really... I wasn't expecting all the prospects to be like that accessible. To, I know there were a lot of them, but that they were really just, you know walking around doing their own thing chatting it was uh it was very it was very unique day yeah very unique event i mean just just to begin with we talked about you know walking by uh the entrance and there's just prospects all over the place crowded around um yeah i think you know this especially it it happens during a work day right this event like friday during the day um 
yeah, it's just, you know, it's clear that it's, it's the draftees, their families, and a bunch of hockey sickos who are willing to, you know, take a day off work or who aren't working um, to, to show up and spend a day at the Bell Center. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was, it was, it's not even just like the, the draftees that were available. It's like, it's, you know, you take a look at all 32 kind of draft tables in the middle of the arena. And you never see that, right? You never see, like, you know, you don't see management people usually, but let alone all of them kind of clustered in the same location um, and, you know, walking out to take pictures like Pierre Dorian did. So, yeah, it was just, it was unique is right. Yeah, it was just fucking cool. It was, uh, it was, solid. It was an A-plus day. Here's a tweet from uh, DragLikePull. On today's 32 Thoughts podcast, Friedman makes it sound like Matt Murray to Toronto is largely a done deal pending Toronto finishing a medical checkup of him. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. It's a shame that we're recording before we figure out the details. We'll talk about it next week for sure. Um, but man, I want to know those details. I want to see what they give up. Do they get anything? Do they get a sweetener? Uh, how much retained? going to be entertaining. Absolutely. Um, speaking of goalies, there was a lot of goalie movement over the weekend. Georgiev goes from New York to Colorado. And Colorado is going into next year with Georgiev Fransos as their tandem. And they signed Georgiev to a three-year, $3.4 million deal. And they're letting Darcy Kemper walk to UFA. And I don't know if you saw this. Chris Johnson said Kemper has his eye on Washington. And the fact, you know, this far out, Washington, you know, traded Vanacek too, leaving Samsonov and, you know, question mark as the goalie tandem. So Kemper makes a lot of sense for them too. Billy Huso goes from St. Louis to Detroit. Uh, they acquired his UFA rights and they signed him to a deal right away. Uh, where do you want to start? What interests you? Let's start with the big one. Let's start with Georgiev. Um, because I think Colorado, because they just won the cup and they're, you know, the ultimate contender, uh, it makes for it makes a fascinating move. Um, it's clear that as a philosophy, roster building wise, Joe Sackett does not want to commit big money to an elite goaltender. He doesn't want to take that risk. And, you know, I think we've talked about in the past where it's like, it's risky. You're playing with fire, you know, just having, doing the whole Kemper thing and it might, it might tank you. Um, Oh, one second. I think my earbuds just disconnected. Can you hear me? Yeah. You good? Uh, I can hear you. I'm just going to reconnect the Bluetooth. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I heard myself echo briefly. Okay. Okay, I'm back. Um, so where was that? Okay. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we're talking about uh, it, it, it's, it's risky, though. Because, it's so, you know, the, it's clear that Sakic wants to go cheap. Um, the trade itself is fine. You know, he's a backup goalie. He trade, like, two-thirds and a fifth. It's, like, mid-round picks. Who really cares? And the contract is, like, reasonable. For a guy who you're handing the starter's job to, like $3.4 million for three years. Um, but yeah, we shredded this guy for kind of seeming to leave goaltending by the wayside as a priority uh, and to really kind of bolster every other part of the roster but it. Um, and it, it still feels kind of risky. I, I don't know if I'm sold on it. Obviously, they won a cup with Kemper, but you know, Georgiev is a backup and has always been a backup, you know, and he didn't have a good season last year either. So. They're leaving themselves very vulnerable, I find, um, to seeing their season tanked by you know, like, oh, Georgiev has a bad season. Are we all really shocked if that happens? Yeah, see, when I saw this trade, I was like, oh, I guess they're making Fransos the starter then. That was my first thought. 
because I would trust him more as a starter than Georgiev. Uh, France, who's, you you know, he hasn't, he has played 57 total career regular season NHL games, Francois. There's not, because he feels like he's been around for a while. Um, he's only really, uh, well, because he was injured all of the 2021 season, which is why it feels like he's been around for so long. Um, but he hasn't actually played a great amount of games. However, in his career, the numbers are pretty excellent. They're like starter caliber, I have to say. In 34 games in 1920, 923 save percentage. This year is the backup, a 916. So I could see Sackick being like, sure, let's hand you the starter's reins. But then they, you know, they gave Georgiev the $3.4 million, which is more than Francois. And then obviously if Francois plays better, uh, then they'll, you know, make him the starter. But their plan is to make Georgiev the starter, even though he's gotten worse and worse each of the past three seasons, and he was a sub-900 this year playing behind Chesterkin. So the fact that this is your guy makes me scratch my head. And the fact that they went for him, after him for, like, what? This is, like, $2 million less than you could assign Kemper for at most? You probably could have gotten Kemper on like a five million AAV for like maybe one extra year for what I am convinced would be a much better on ice result. Yeah, absolutely. Because at least, you know, Kemper, he's got the track record of, you know, a, a solid, he's a good goalie overall. He just gets injured and did not have a good playoffs. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it could work out. I think the bar really is don't blow it. For either for any goalie that kind of comes through Colorado, uh, but you know Georgiev mm-hmm. just needs to be what a nine ten, and it's passable. And nine ten is not very good, but he just needs to be passable. And you know what? It doesn't even need to be Georgiev. It could be Francis for all they care, right? Um, but yeah, it does. You know, it, 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 they are so cap strapped though. That's the thing. You talk about like two million dollars to, I don't know, get Kemper extra. Like you know, I get if their philosophy is we're gonna leave goaltending to last. That $2 million, I think, really makes a difference, and they want to invest that in, you know, keeping that the, the skaters intact. Yeah, I just, I, I don't think Georgiev's very good. That's what it really comes down to. Yeah. I don't believe in him as much as Sakic does. Um, how about the Devils now? So, I hadn't realized, but Jonathan Bernier's injury is apparently quite serious. I don't remember exactly what it is, but he might may not play this season which is the main reason why, you know, they went out and had to get someone else to tan him with Blackwood. Because when they first made this trade, I was like, oh, now instead of two bad goalies, they have three bad goalies. Um, but I guess it is in fact two because their plan seems to be now a Vanacek, Mackenzie Blackwood tandem next season. I mean, they're both youngish for goalies. I imagine, you know, you can conceive of a world where one of them emerges as a starter or at least plays like it for the season. But, uh, you know, it's still a question mark. Yeah, still very underwhelming goaltending tandem. Um, and it's clear that the Devils, I don't think they have any plans of contending anytime soon. This this really, the, both of them, Vanacek and Blackwood, feel like stopgap goalies, right? Uh, neither of them, you could say, are your franchise guy. And for Vanacek, you know, I think... You give him more opportunities. It's, it's what it is. I mean, he had the chance in Washington because Samsonov had such a bad season to, to kind of grab that starter job. He never did. He was bad down the stretch. But I guess it's like, you know, second round pedigree and whatnot. You want to, and he's still relatively young. So, you know, you give him some more chances to see if he can get his shit together. Uh, but if not, I don't think they've invested too much into him. At the end of the day, what they acquired him for, 
they dropped uh, a few spots in the second round and they gave up a third. So, you know, ideally you're not giving up assets like that for a stopgap goalie, but there's there's some potential in Vanacek and where, you, you know, if you went for the UFA market, especially with, a, you know, how few there are this year, you're probably getting somebody who's old as shit. So it's understandable to third round pick, but don't expect, you know, magic from, from this devil's tandem. If you're Colorado, would you have tried to go after Vanacek instead of Georgiev? Because I, I probably would have. I don't know. I think they're like similar goalies. They, neither of them have established themselves as starting, uh, starting you know, caliber goalie stuff. And, you know, you can make the argument that Georgiev hasn't had the opportunity, really, while Vanacek has, right? Because Georgiev has had to kind of sit behind Chesterkin, um, while uh, Vanacek had the chance this year to, to become a starter, and he let the ball drop. Okay. I, I see where you're coming from with that. Vanacek, he was a 908 this year. When you look at, you know, the the year as a whole. I know things really, you know, took a turn for the worse near the end. But I do think, you know, a lot like, you know, Georgiev's numbers were worse than Vanacek's in fewer games. And so I think you're trying to translate it to, all right, and how does that look behind a better team like Colorado? Which goalie has the better chance of, you know, as you said, not blowing it? I think I'd probably give the edge to Vanacek there. Yeah, fair enough. I think the the, the floor is probably higher with Vanacek. Um, but if you're committing to someone for three years, I get going with your Georgiev. I think it's it's organizational philosophy. I think Sakic really believes that he's finding a diamond in the rough and Georgiev is the vibe I'm getting. Mm-hmm. Um, A couple other trades that were made on day two. Luke Cunning to the Sharks. Who really cares? I saw I saw that trade. I don't think they even announced it in the arena because there were no draft picks involved for that day. I saw it on Twitter. I didn't see a single person say anything about it. It's just, you know, which is weird for someone like Cunning who was like a first-round pick not that long ago and is like, you know, with Dells. Maybe it's that the fact that no one cares about Nashville and San Jose. Maybe because they're both so irrelevant these days. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if Toronto was trading for Luke Cunning, people would be talking about it, right? <laughs> for for sure. sure. So, you know, who cares about the Sharks? Who cares about the Preds? And yeah, Luke Cunning's pretty irrelevant at this point. I mean, sure, first-round pedigree, but like, what is he? Bottom six guy now? Um, and he doesn't do much else. He, he, Might be the Sharks' top line winger. Oh, fucking hey. Um, but yeah, like third round pick, honestly, probably a bit of a, well, no, it's, I don't know. I wouldn't say overpay. It's reasonable. It's fine. He's not going to pan out to anything good. Yeah. So that's it. There, there really isn't much to say about it. So I'm not surprised they didn't tweet about <laughs> it. And the other one was uh, Carolina trading Tony D'Angelo and a seventh round pick to philadelphia for a second a third and a fourth uh i've got to say um bad move for the flyers not just for you know obvious d'angelo reasons but because uh this i really do believe is an overpay well a it's an overpay despite the you know his great offensive productions but b it further goes to show how the flyers do not understand where they are as a team they don't understand they're bad. That's that's basically it. Um, I I've you've probably seen the you know, the the tweets about all all they've gave up in like rebuilding the right side of their defense to what it is today, which is D'Angelo, Ryan Ellis, and Rasmus Ristolainen, and all the assets they gave up to get that done. Uh, I was obviously the Ristolainen one. Somehow, I mean, it's it's 
I wow, this just until now. It's re- probably reverse order in terms of how good they are. They gave it the most for Rich Delion, the second most for D'Angelo, and the least to get Ryan Ellis. And if I had to rank them all by on ice value, it would be the other way around. Yeah, I think it's it's not even understanding that they're bad and they shouldn't be trying to acquire and build a defense like this. It's also not understanding how to build a good defense. Uh, it's just the talent analysis is mystifying. What the fuck are they doing? It, it's like three bad assets, you know. And, and you you know like whether it's you know D'Angelo a because of his character concerns and him being a shitbag in general and you know not being a good teammate and whatnot. Um, but B also not being able to defend. Period. You know he's fine offensively. He's good offensively. But he's just not good in his own zone at all. He's a complete liability. Ristolainen is Ristolainen, and Ryan Ellis is, you know, an anchor contract at this point. So, uh, it's 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 yeah, it's it's not understanding anything. It's your direction. It's your talent evaluation. Uh, yeah, even for a contending team, if they if they want like, okay, we want to build up our defense to contend, and they did this shit, you would laugh them out of the room, right? So, yeah, it's just and and for, and for Carolina, uh, that's a that's a that's a robbery. You know, you sign this guy for a year, a million dollars. Um, obviously, you compromised your morals uh, and really outed yourselves as a bunch of shitbags. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, for the RFA rights, they got a second, a third, and a fourth. So on ice-wise, it's a good return for them. Uh, and yeah, the Flyers giving up futures for this is incredible. And now we get to watch Tony D'Angelo, see how he meshes with uh, with John Tortorella is the next move. Yes, I foresee this working out badly let's let's just say that um next one another pennsylvania team and a right shot defenseman chris letang signed a six-year contract that feels specifically designed to ltir letang about three years into it or so and you know that that took a while for people to seem to to realize including me because like what are you, what are you doing signing him till he's 40 didn't you not want to sign him for more than three years what are you thinking that he's injured all the time. This feels like, uh, all right, you know, Chris Letang, you've been a great soldier and helped us win Stanley Cups. So we're going to give you a bunch of extra money that you're never, that won't ever count against our cap uh, because you're going to go on LTIR in three years yeah, or so. Exactly. And he'll get the money, right? It's just they it won't count against the cap. So uh, win win. And, uh, you know, 6.1, I think it's it's reasonable for, for Letang and the offensive production he gives. And so, yeah, they want—they clearly want to maximize this window with kind of Crosby around to uh, try to try to go for one more, perhaps. Um, whether that window is already shut is up for debate, but they're clearly going it for it, and this is part of that. So, I guess you know the next next three years is really where it's at with this contract um, and what really matters. And and after that, they'll probably LTIR him, or they'll suck so bad they, they'll suck so bad they don't even need to. Um, it's it's not too egregious. Pittsburgh Pittsburgh is clearly the, the sun is setting on this team. Duncan Keith retired too, and Oilers fans, I'm sure, were doing happy dances about that, not just because of how terrible he is, but because they now get a little bit of cap credit that they will probably use to take a run at Jack Campbell. Hello? Hello? Oh, did you say anything after uh, Jack, taking a run at Jack Campbell? No. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought it cut out. Um, yeah. that's and, and for Chicago, they get that $5 million cap hit because, what, cap recapture or whatever? 
strange shit. I don't understand it. I don't even really understand why they get cap credit in the first place. The Oilers do. Uh, but yeah, he was a liability. He was not worth $5 million. The Oilers need the cap space. And this is a win-win all around uh, for, for the Oilers because, uh, yeah, they get that cap credit. But also, uh, they needed to get his contract off the books. They were in cap trouble. Yes, and now they also will be, you know, on the lookout for more supplements on the left side of their defense. Because behind Darnell Nurse now, it's Philip Broberg and Slater Cuckoo. And I imagine they don't want to go into next year with both of those players in their top six. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, otherwise, I, I think that's that's about it in terms of the new... Oh, there was also uh, the Philip Forsberg contract. Uh, he signed uh, Yes, of course. Uh, so, yeah, Nashville, big debate. Oh, is he, is, will he, won't he come back to the Nashville Predators? Uh, seems that he will because uh, he's signing a eight-year, $8.5 million contract. Um, he, got, he got the boat. He got all the cash. Uh, and yeah, for Nashville, this is, uh, this is clearly a, we're trying to contend. And we think that this core of Yossi, Saros and Forsberg can bring us to the, to the glory land or whatever. Um, I think we've talked about it before. This is, seems misguided. This this team is wholly mediocre. And, uh, now they've committed themselves like in a vacuum, the contract's not bad really for talent of Forsberg's caliber. Uh, but you know, this or this team's not going anywhere. Nope. Nope, it absolutely isn't. Until Joachim Kamel shows up and becomes the savior. But until then, this is a mediocre team. One more deal that I want to discuss. And I'm cu- I'm very curious to see what your opinion is on this. And it's the Adrian Kempe deal. And this feels like the type of deal you'll go overpay. And I'm gonna go now wait a second, maybe not. But let's see what you get what you think. Yeah, I, I'm not like, a, I think it's a bit of an overpay, but I'm not like, you know, in the firm overpay camp. I mean, like, he's fine as like a top six guy. $5.5 million seems a bit much. You know, I feel like easy, maybe not replaceable, replaceable, but I feel like you could have gotten better value there. And, for, but I mean, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's not a great contract. That's, that's my take there. I think if he plays the way he did this year moving forward, then it is a great contract. Um, and you might go, oh, is, was this year just a, you know, a one-off or whatever? He is, I think, 26. So I do think there is a possibility. Maybe he was a bit of a, a late bloomer offensively because he was a first-round pick in 2014. And throughout his NHL career, he's basically just been, you know, Good, reliable defensive forward who can chip in offensively from time to time. This year, all of a sudden, puts 35 goals on the board. Gets invited to the All-Star game. And now he's an excellent, well-rounded, top-line caliber player who is worth $5.5 million AAV, at least. Um, It is a one-year sample size. But I do think there is a very real possibility that Kempe has just put it together and this is who he is now. I think there's reason to have faith in that. And if that's the case, I think the Kings got a pretty decent value deal. It's a, it's a reasonable gamble. But yeah, that is that is the thing. It is the one-year sample size. Is it just a contract year bump, um, which we see pretty often? Um, but yeah, maybe he just he's just a better player. He just got better this year. It's, it's distinctly possible. So, you know, I don't hate the deal. I just think, you know, I think you could have gotten away with getting giving him less. But I, I get wanting to keep him for sure. All right. Um, 
this has been a pretty long episode. I don't know exactly how long because we had to split it up into into three chunks. But I'm pretty sure we are over two hours at this point. So let's close out with a question. Johnny Gaudreau. Free agency opens in two days. Is he staying in Calgary? Is he going somewhere else? What's your prediction? Uh, I think I think he's going to stay. I think Calgary, you know, they, they got to keep him because uh, the success that they had last year, um, obviously didn't trans- they lost to the Oilers. That did not translate to the playoffs exactly. But... I mean, it seems that they've they've built they've built a pretty formidable team where I was I was pretty sold on them, and they got to keep them around. So I say stay. Now they're kind of doomed, aren't they? You know, just for the sake of fun, I'm going to take the field. You take Calgary, I take the field. I'm saying go. All right. I, I have no idea where, but I'm I'm taking all the other 31 teams. Goudreau's going to one of them. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, okay. All right. So yeah, next week we'll be back, and uh, free agency will have happened. Because uh, it'll open in two days, and uh, lots of exciting stuff. So, and and we'll probably find out where Johnny Gaudreau goes. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add? Yeah. Uh, I hope this episode wasn't too all over the place. It kind of was, and I hope uh, our tired ramblings weren't too incoherent. Mine mostly, especially near the beginning. Um, but thanks for listening anyway. Hearing our thoughts, it's the most intense time of the off season and also the most fun. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at fusion and hockey podcast, which is still the same handle from last week. Uh, I'll put our Twitters in the description too. Uh, we'll be back probably a week from today. Free agency trades, all that thing, you know, the drill, the end. <laughs> <laughs>